Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Hi, this is Mike Fernandez. Hi, Gary. How are you doing? Good, Mike. How are you? Good, good. We have a great show today. Our guest is going to be Leslie Gaines Ross, a friend of both of ours and the chief reputation officer. Yeah, so smart. At Weber Shanwick. And, uh, and in fact, I've used one of her books in, in a course that I taught at uh, NYU and another one that uh, that I taught at uh, George Washington oh, University. Right, yeah. the, the book, by the way, is, is Corporate Reputation, 12 Steps to Safeguarding and Recovering Reputation. It's very good. And, and it's not long, but those of you interested in reputation management, you'll love what uh, Leslie has to share with us today, and you'll love the book. Anyway, what I would want to do is, before we go there, there's, there's a few news items that I thought we should talk about. One of them has kind of been ever-present, at least over the last four to six weeks, and has been growing. And that is that, in fact, in the last week of January, the World Health Organization actually declared the coronavirus as a global epidemic. And, of course, we've seen, you know, lots of uh, flights canceled. Mm -hmm. We've seen immigration denials at a lot of ports of entry. I see Apple is closing its... Stores in China. Yeah, yeah. But what caught my eye was the fact that we probably should have known that this was coming even sooner. There was a Chinese doctor who had warned of the coronavirus back the last week of December after seven patients had actually been stricken, suggesting that the new virus could be another SARS, which, Mm -hmm. of course, 800 people had died of back in 2002. And in fact, the government officials had kind of uh, taunted him and compelled him to retract his warning as kind of illegal behavior. So the government's initial handling of the epidemic actually allowed the virus to to gain a bit of a hold here. What does this say about how maybe not just Chinese government, but sometimes how others react in, in, in crises that they think might somehow reflect on them poorly, and especially in the age of transparency. Yeah, and and this is just human nature mm-hmm. in some ways, probably magnified yeah. in a, you know, in dictatorship. Or in, yeah. This is something we t- I teach in my crisis class here at BU all the time, is that embarrassing or damaging information often will be withheld either at the top level of the company or by people who are responsible for the bad news. Mm-hmm. And that the communications within an organization, in this case, the the Chinese government uh, and health officials, played perfectly into those scenarios we talk about in our class, is that uh, people just tend to want to suppress bad information, bad news. It's human nature. And look, it doesn't just happen in China. It happens everywhere. And I would... Happens uh, in corporations in in corporations, and I've seen it, Mm -hmm. right? And Mm -hmm. you've seen it. And that's why you have to have an open and just transparent dialogue with people about what's going on. Now, it will never kill right. the human right. <laughs> need for self-preservation right. and for to avoid embarrassment. It's like somehow you have to make it safe 
for people That's to right. share information. Right. And I know that, uh, for instance, the folks at General Motors went through that after yeah. they, after they had the ignition problems. Right. And they dealt with all the recalls and the issues yeah. associated with that. They sort of revisited their own mission, vision, and values. Completely. And said, you know, we're actually going to put a light on this subject, and we're going to praise people who come forward That's right. with information yeah. and put safety first. Yeah. And we used to call it an open reporting environment, and that's a really bad corporate phrase for people feeling the freedom to come forward. Alex Dmitriev, who's been a guest on, yes, on, on The Crux, show. has talked about that, and I had him talk about it to our students. It's so important. And in some cases, we punish people if they didn't bring these reports anonymously in many cases, which is what you want. Uh, people ha have that freedom. But look, I, I don't think there's a lot of medals to go around on any communications related to the coronavirus. And I would, and I don't want to make this political in the United States e either, but there really hasn't been a focus on it in the U.S. and getting good information from the government. Yeah. I, I think that has, that raises the possibility that people begin to blame, you know, this country or that person or this person is that this is something that if it is indeed going to become a, a pandemic and that we all have to manage you know, smartly, I would say the U.S. government hasn't really made this a priority right now. All of our smartphones and our iPads and our expensive TVs really aren't worth much if there's not truth and there's not useful yeah. information on them. And I, I would like to see civil society, mm -hmm. both in the United States and around the world, focus on this as a communications challenge right now yeah. because I think it's needed. And so there aren't recriminations, mm -hmm. and that's a, a productive discussion rather than a blaming discussion. Yeah, well, kind of one of the themes of, of this show throughout yep. our first year totally. was the need for greater civil discourse. Yes. And I think this underscores that. Another thing that's kind of fun uh, Super is Bowl. Super Bowl. <laughs> While the game was, was very yeah, was interesting, yeah. there's those of us that take a real interest in yep. the ads. Yes. So I'm just curious before I ask the area yeah. that I really want to get into with the ads, Ads, is what was your favorite? Did you have any favorites from the oh, Super Bowl I, ads? You know, I'm a heart guy. You know, yeah, I pull like at the heartstrings, and I like the Google ad mm -hmm. about the Google helping this older man remember his wife. I thought that was very touching. You know, it made my wife cry, you know, during the <laughs> game, and I won't say whether I did or not. <laughs> but I think, Mike, the era of the cutesy. Budweiser frog ads. I, I just, maybe I'm getting older. I think that's done. To me, I, I want to see something with heart uh -huh. and something that really shows me the value and character of the organization. Yeah. I thought that was good, even though I, you know, then I read this morning one of the reviews you always read the morning after the game. And they pointed out, of course, that, you know, all the privacy issues with Google and all of that. Uh, <laughs> of course, they're helping. That. Yeah, you're help, they're helping you remember because they know everything. So that, how about you? What would you think? Well, well, I mean, there were a couple that I thought were funny and cute that I kind of liked. Yeah. One was the Hyundai commercial yeah. done here in Boston. Yep, that's uh, right. Called Smart Pock <laughs> and uh, had, a, had a, a cameo appearance by a big poppy. Oh, right, uh, right. So, so I, I thought that was that was very well done. Uh, the other ad that I loved was the uh, Bill Murray for uh, Jeep. Oh, that was great. It's sort of, you know, uh, Groundhog Day. Underrated movie. A really <laughs> great movie. So now I'm going to give you a little quiz on Super Bowl ads that I read oh, in the no. Wall Street <laughs> Journal this morning. 
Since 1995, who do you think the top spender is company-wise on Super Bowl ads? I have no earthly idea. Yeah, Anheuser-Busch. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that yeah. makes sense. You know, oh, we always see the Clydesdales. Now, this is through last year, I guess, so $583 million. Number two is Pepsi. Uh-huh. And then Fiat, Chrysler, three. So a lot of the automobile companies. Yeah, Disney (laughs) and Coca-Cola. There you go. So soft drinks, automobiles. Yeah, exactly, is what you're seeing. Uh, Anyway, I I just think the golden era of the Super Bowl ad may be over. I I don't know. That was my sense of the the game last night. Yeah. Now, one of the things I did want to ask you about, so this was the very first Super Bowl where we had political Uh, ads. Yes. Donald Trump and uh, Mike Bloomberg. Each apparently shelled out about $10 million to place advertising as the very first uh, political ads in the Super Bowl. I don't know. Did you see them both? I saw the Bloomberg ad about guns, Uh which I thought was very good. Mm -hmm. I saw two Trump ads, one about general themes, safety, security, prosperity, and then I saw one about criminal justice reform. Yeah. And a w- woman who got out of jail because yeah, and I of think the what happened was they originally were going in for like a 60-second buy. Then for some reason, they, they had to split, split it. it. They split they it. They did 230s. So they did like a shorter version yeah. of 60, and then they did the other. Oh, I see. Justice. I gotcha. So the, one of them was that stronger, safer, more prosperous yes, yeah. sort of pitch. And then, of course, the Bloomberg was more yeah. on, on gun control with a young man who was shot in yeah, the community. Football player, yeah. But who had, yeah, aspirations someday yeah. to play in the NFL. What would you think? What did you think of the Bloomberg ad particularly? Because well, he's, he's got his little boomlet going here in the polls, right? Yeah, and, and what was interesting to me was before, when I first saw the ad, the hype around the ad, I was like kind of worried in terms of, okay, so normally we get happy, feel-good yeah. advertising in the midst of a Super Bowl. Is it right place, right time? Yeah. You know, how many of the people who are actually watching this yeah. are chugging their beers and, you know, have a gun in the closet yeah. kind of thing? Right. Is this the right target? Yeah. Was my first reaction. But then I thought what was interesting is the NFL ran its own ad yes. that dealt with shooting in a community yeah. and a football player in terms of uh, Anquan Baldwin. Yeah. Baldwin. Uh, and St. Louis Cardinal, right, at one point, or yeah, in a Raven yeah, and, and that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, both of them were tug at the heartstrings in more of a compassionate, yeah. difficult kind of tug. And I thought they were both good, yeah. you know. And then the Trump ad was more, you know, big this, is, this is big themes. This is yeah. what I've done. Whether you agree with whether he's done them or not, yeah. it clearly was a more thematic approach. Yeah. On the Trump ad, the big ones, you know, security, safer, prosperity, it shows how why he's going to be difficult to beat. Mm-hmm. The broader themes, you know, once you get into the details with this president, it gets really messy. And Mm -hmm. again, like you say, I thought the ad on he signed a bill that uh, reduced some sentences for drug offenders. And the ad was about a woman who got out of prison for selling marijuana and was reunited with her family. Guns is a core issue for Mike Bloomberg. It always has been. Mm -hmm. This is not a core issue for Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. I thought that one was a miss. Mm hmm. Because certainly the president isn't known for reuniting families. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite the opposite. Well, I thought the bigger, broader one with jets flying, F-35s flying over and all of that, yeah. it's a very strong 
broad message. I thought the specific one was a mess. It was tougher. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I agree. And then one last thing before we go to Leslie. I'm sure with Leslie, we're going to get into a conversation around reputation and mission, mm-hmm. vision, and values. And we'll also likely talk about employee activism mm-hmm. and employees doing the right thing. And as a consequence, there was this one Nick Kristoff piece mm-hmm. that caught my eye this past week in sort of prepping. There was a, a gentleman. He had deposited a check of a little over $1,000 as a paycheck into his U.S. bank account. Mm-hmm. This is in the, the Portland, Oregon suburbs. And this is right before Christmas. The bank put a hold on most of the sum. Yep. He spent a number of hours at the branch office kind of awaiting yeah. to have access to, to at the... least a portion of that money. He was said, you know, it'll come through. It'll just be a little bit longer because he was looking for that money to buy presents, uh, Christmas presents for his nine-year-old daughter and his 13-year-old wow. son. On Christmas Eve, there is this call that he makes into the bank. He still doesn't have full access to the funds. He's trying to pay his fee for having just filled up his automobile with gasoline. And his call to the person on the phone was, I'm stranded. Uh, This is a U.S. bank. Yeah. Teleoperator, if yeah, you will. Yeah, yeah. And so he telephoned. It was the bank's toll-free number, and he spoke to this woman. Her name's Emily James. She's a senior officer at the call center in Portland. She spent some time with the gentleman on the phone trying to see what she could do, and ultimately, when she had nothing at her fingertips that she could do, she offered to drive over from her call center and personally hand the gentleman $20, her own money. To pay for the gas. To pay for the gas and to, while she would continue to work on the problem, she got approval from her supervisor to go Make. make the drive over, give him the money. When U.S. Bank found out that it had such a generous employee, what do you think it did? I don't know, what? They fired her. Right. Because that wasn't the policy. Wow. (laughs) Uh, She had broken the rules. She put herself and the bank at unnecessary risk, was what the spokesperson from the bank said. But she had gotten permission from her direct supervisor. Yeah. And the U.S. Bank's vision statement says, our employees are empowered to do the right thing. Wow. There's a hundred ways they could have handled that much better and still fulfilled their values. Mm Mm-hmm and protected that employee. Yeah. And the one way they handled it was the only (laughs) way they could have done it wrong, right? Yeah, I think so. You know, and this is where process gets in the way Mm -hmm. of, you know, empathy and humanizing your company. You you see it all the time. This, Mike, hearing this from you, Reminds me, what was the United when they pulled that poor doctor off the plane? Isn't there stated value on uh, one of them on their website is we fly friendly? Right. right, and about treating customers right and right. all that kind of thing. Right. We're going to hear from Leslie in a minute about actions, yeah. backing up what you have to say. But boy, this is just yeah, well, bureaucracy a, run wild. Ab- absolutely. And, and and I think it's a cautionary note to all organizations. Mm-hmm. You, know, you need to walk the talk. Yeah. People need to be able to understand that what you say is your bond. Yes. And it's a reminder for the CCO... I always thought this, you have to teach that inside the company, you have to run a little community college, a little education program, 
everybody who works here is a reputation officer for this enterprise. Absolutely. And you may be a risk, you know, assessor. You may be a somebody who's a teleoperator. Everybody here, middle manager, has the hands of the enterprise in there. Yeah, in, well, well, or and, their reputation. And in their Bruce Rohde, who used to be uh, the CEO at Conagra, yeah. he used to say, "Everything communicates." Yes, it, totally right. And this, you know, U.S. I don't know a lot about U.S. Bank. Mm-hmm. This is a black eye on a small thing. Yeah, on a small thing. That's hard to overcome. Yeah. You could say it's bad judgment at sort of the point of the spear. Yeah. What you'd like to think is that organizations really think about their mission, vision, and values. And that they reinforce it in various ways so that people know inside the company what they can and cannot do. Excellent. Great. Our guest today on The Crux is Leslie Gaines-Ross, who has chronicled the changing world of corporate reputation better than anyone. Uh, Leslie is the chief reputation officer in residence at Weber Shanwick, the terrific global PR firm and one of the largest in the world. Leslie, look, most of you who are listening to this know who Leslie is and love her work. She's done award-winning research into CEO and corporate reputation, corporate rankings, online reputation, social CEOs, activist CEOs, you name it. She spearheaded the first comprehensive research on CEO reputation and its impact on company reputation and business performance. She's been published in the Harvard Business Review, MIT Sloan Management Review, and the Huffington Post. She's the author of two books, which I highly recommend, CEO Capital, A Guide to Building CEO Reputation and Company Success, and Corporate Reputation, 12 Steps to Safeguarding and Recovering Reputation. Now, Leslie, what we're going to talk about today with Leslie is all of that work and how it builds to what's going on right now in in 2020. Leslie's out with KRC Research uh, and her work at Weber with a new study that's really fascinating, The State of Corporate Reputation in 2020. Everything Matters Now, and that's a survey of executives in 22 markets. And uh, Leslie's also done some writing recently on LinkedIn about what to look out for in 2020 on reputation. So, Leslie, welcome to The Crux. Oh, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to have you. So let's start with basics. So what is your definition? You've been studying reputation for a long time. What's your definition of reputation? Sure. And I always start out with defining what reputation means because it means so many different things and there's so many definitions out there. But I think the most basic, most common definition of reputation is that it's how others see you. So it's not what you as a company or organization might want it to be, (laughs) but it's really how others see you. And the other important part of, de- of reputation is that it's all about the character of the organization. And I think that that's really important. So it's not just that reputation is a brand emblem or something, but instead it's about the fundamental character of a company and its leaders. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, so tell me, what do you, how do you define character? Is it how we commonly think of that word? 
Um, I think it's how we commonly think about the word. I think that we think of it as something that is earned. It's something that is about keeping your promise. It's about very often about that stakeholders know that you will do the right thing, behave and speak um, appropriately and according to the values of your organization. It's to the organization is at its very core. There's another, I always think is a kind of a funny way of talking about reputation, and that is what people say when you uh, leave the room. <laughs> and I I've heard that. that. Yeah, because they think that is also a part of reputation. What are people really saying about you? <laughs> Boy, I don't even want to think about that for for, <laughs> for, for Mike particularly. Yeah, but you know, uh, I got it. <laughs> so your new study of as as if we didn't have enough as reputation managers to worry about these days. Um, your new study says that uh, reputation today is omni-driven. What does that mean? So you know, I've, like you said, I've been in this world of reputation for a really long time, and. When I first started out, I was at Fortune Magazine and looking at the world's most admired companies. And that was really the granddaddy of all these reputation studies. And when you would ask what matters to reputation, it was always, always at the top quality of products and services. <laughs> that was it. Right. That and financial performance. So that was it. That's all you had to worry about. You didn't have to worry about all these other things. But we're living in a very different world today. And when we did this research, we were really surprised to see that so many factors that drive reputation matter. And that was why we called it omnidriven. That reputation today is everything. It's, it's whether it's the quality of your employees, quality of your product, your financial performance, your corporate culture, your community, your ethics, your values how you communicate, how you market, all of those factors. And instead of there being a top tier of factors, mm -hmm. and a middle tier and a bottom tier, now it seems actually like they're all one and the same. And if one doesn't go well, it could topple all the others. And I think in this world that we live in where technology is so ubiquitous and social media is everywhere, I think that you have to really monitor and regard all of these factors. Did that surprise you? The one thing that surprised me about the the survey, the study, was that ethics and values were sort of, as you say, everything sort of came across the finish line within sighting, you know, sight of each other. But I thought ethics and value, given everything we've ha heard and seen in the corporate world lately about purpose that would have scored higher, would have been num a clear number one. Um, it was in the middle of the pack, but albeit um, not too far behind the, f you know, the top concerns. Well, did that surprise me? No, I mean, our big surprise was how very, how little distinction there was among these 23 factors driving reputation. That was shocking to me. And um, I think that quality... I mean, ethics and values is still pretty up, much up there. It's something like up in the 70% in terms of it being important still in terms of driving reputation. I think what surprised me, and I guess 
uh, it's somewhat disappointing to me is that diversity and inclusion was not mm-hmm. a bit high. And I think that that's something that I've always noticed, that diversity and inclusion, um, community relations, e- you know, ESG, environmental responsibility type factors, we're not at the very, very top in terms of how reputations are regarded today. Yeah, That's so, disappointing. But then again, I think maybe these are new factors that are just evolving and are eventually penetrating the world of reputation. And mind you, this is still a, this is a global study. So right, that's a good point. Uh, you know, one of the things, Leslie, that surprised me was that uh, your study found that 87% of executives uh, say their company reputation is strong, and 45% actually said it was very strong. Uh, what surprises me there is that given those other topics, given other survey results that we've seen, uh, and, and seen that, you know, trust among companies and particularly large companies and all institutions is fairly low. How do you reconcile that? Is there a great dissonance? Is there a gap between what they believe and what the general public and their customers actually believe? Yeah, well, I think the answer to that is something that you always see in research. It depends on how you ask the question. Mm -hmm. So we all think when someone asks me what I think of business in general, I might have a different answer than if you ask me what I think about my own company where I work. Right. And in our survey, we were asking about the reputation of the company where you work and the CEO, the reputation, uh, CEO's reputation where you work. So I think what we're, we decided when we went into the study is to really look at how do executives feel about where they're working. And yes, there is a real sense that reputation is quite strong today. And I think that even the Edelman Trust Barometer, when they recently came out with their new findings, they found that business, the perceptions of business was actually higher than other institutions mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. government and NGOs. Right. So I think it depends on how you ask the question. And I think that trust in business is ever so slightly improved Proving, yeah, um, because business is taking a big role today in yeah. society. Much bigger role. Yeah. So, so what are most company, or what are some of the better companies doing to kind of best square this the the situation where perceptions are maybe improving? There's still a large segment of the public that has kind of a not as positive a feeling about business's reputation as business thinks its own reputation is. Well, what are some of the better companies doing in order to close that gap and to make sure that what they believe or hope for in their own company reputations are actually achieving their aims? Well, I think I was pretty encouraged to see all the conversation dialogue around just talking about your own company's reputation. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we saw that um, business leaders in the survey, the 69% said that they have mentioned the company, that whether it's the CEO or the organization, talked about their own mm-hmm. company's reputation in the past 12 months. 
we see it's being mentioned in about 57%. That's a large number. And yeah. on earnings calls, that's incredible. Yeah. And that we see that executives are saying, yeah, we're monitoring, we're studying reputation. We're not just, this isn't so important that we're committing resources to monitoring our reputation on a twice a year or, or yearly basis. So I think that um, it's not just we talk. I think reputation is very much infused within organizations today. And, you know, when you were talking with Gary, you talked a little bit about uh, mission, vision, values, and the executives thought the ability to communicate these things was important and that it contributes to company reputation and particularly tied with crisis management. Is this new? In the past, might they have considered financial performance to be the most important? I mean, it seems like there's increasingly more factors that they're, they're, they're taking their weight of. Do they, are they looking at some of these other factors as like leading indicators as to whether or not they, they, they'll be viewed as a good, solid company? Um, yes, I think we looked at um, the importance of marketing and communications to reputation. When we were asking about what drives reputation, and uh, 55% over half said it was important. Then we also drilled down a bit deeper into what are the factors in the marketing and communication that really matter in terms of driving reputation. And we see that among the very top was communicating the vision, mission, and values and how a company responds in a crisis. And I think we're seeing that values, corporate purpose is all risen in importance and making sure it's communicated. And also how a company responds in crisis. This is, to me, becomes Mm. the make make or break. And we have certainly seen numerous, numerous, numerous examples of companies losing reputation and eroding their reputation because of how they respond in a crisis. And that is this whole idea of reputation risk management is absolutely at the top of executive agendas today. Well, Leslie, and and along those lines, you know, I I went to work in the corporate world for the guy that was probably the biggest proponent of the shareholder view of corporate corporate purpose, Jack Welch, right? Mm-hmm. Jack made a made a point of that both publicly and privately. He'd say, "Gary, I can't do anything good for society if I don't make money first. Right. And that's my prime responsibility, which is sort of a logical argument. But with the business roundtable statement, the Larry Fink statement, Goldman Sachs not going to do IPOs for companies that don't have a, a diverse person on their board. So there seems to be just some real momentum recently around the stakeholder approach to corporate purpose. And while, you know, executives agree, seem to agree that everyone's perceptions matter, this omni-driven concept, customers are still number one on that list, albeit, you know, in a close a photo finish at, <laughs> at, at the end. What do you make of this? People in the lo- in the local community are still at the bottom of that. Are the companies in these companies institutionally ready for the era of purpose? I guess is what I'm asking you from a reputation standpoint. That's a great question. I think that there is a lot of authenticity in what the business roundtable has said, and in what Larry Fink has said, and all of this focus on ESG and so forth. But I think it's, it's an inflection point in the ongoing 
story about reputation. So I think what they're all saying is this matters. It's important. We can't just focus on um, shareholder value. We have to look at stakeholder primacy as well. And so I do think that there are different factors that might right now mean more, but that it's going to fluctuate. So, of course, customers are at the very Mm -hmm. top of the list. Makes sense. And that makes a great deal of sense. And financial performance, of course, is important. But we all see that the next generation, particularly, who everyone wants to hire, they really care about ESG principles, you know, the environment, climate change. They care about jobs and skills training. They care about corporate purpose. And I think that they the stakeholder approach is just going to grow and grow and grow yeah, in the future. I think that's right. The one that worries me a little bit, Leslie, we've talked about it before on the crux, is our CEOs and boards ready for the wave of employee activism that's coming or is already here in some cases. To me, that may be the one area that is the Achilles heel as we go forward on whether they're ready to deal with how employees feel and the expectations that have been created mm-hmm. through a purpose. Well, and particularly Gen Z. Yeah, you know? exactly. I mean, I mean, we've seen already in the last uh, year or so, well, Amazon more recently, employees protesting about the carbon footprint of right. the company, Google, diversity, and other issues. Uh, here in Boston, uh, Wayfair, Wayfair around the right. issue that they were, yeah. you know, providing goods to these border retention centers. And part of that, Leslie, I'd like to ask you about in your work is our boards ready for this stakeholder era? I, I, I always, you know, thought I had the benefit of having somebody like Shelley Lazarus on the GE board, who obviously from Ogilvy, who understands reputation, brand management, et cetera. A lot of boards haven't don't have that kind of person on it. And I just wonder, I know boards are concerned, and it sounds like from your survey that they are. What do you think about whether boards are ready for this stakeholder era? I think that they're aware of it, but I certainly don't think most boards are prepared for it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that it's going to be such a sea change um, in this decade in terms of employee activism all these stakeholders having a voice. I mean, the employees having a voice, like we've recently seen this year, is still startling. Yes. (laughs) It's so startling. And I think that we're going to, boards are not prepared for it and believe that they can just stamp it out. And as we have recently seen, that's not the case. Right. Especially if you get hundreds of your employees to sign up and say, we're protesting, you can't fire all your employees. So I think we're going to see a lot more in the future. And boards are going to have to figure out strategies for dealing with it. And like, you you know, we did, I think we've done at Weber Shamwick the first survey on employee activism, which really showed that these employees, especially millennials, Mm -hmm. believe that they're justified Mm -hmm. in speaking out. So I think it's going to be a whole new ballgame. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think that the the great challenge in this space is that boards are very good. And I think in general, uh, senior management of corporations are very good with dealing with a specific problem mm-hmm, yeah. or issue. 
Is it financial? Is it legal? Good point. Yeah. Do we have uh, regulatory issues yeah. here? Do we need to hire more people? Where do we need to source this material? I mean, I think to the extent that it becomes concrete, specific, and time-bound, they're very good. And, and, and what's interesting about the age that we're entering into, which we might call the reputation age, is that you have individuals, particularly millennials, but I even think even more so with Gen Zs, the students we now see yeah, yeah. In, in college campuses and high schools uh, today, is there's this tendency to treat all that they encounter as somewhat social. Mm -hmm. And that they, they, the companies they work for, the products they buy, the, the entities they interact with, uh, they feel that there's, there, there needs to be something associational with how they feel about the greater universe mm -hmm. that they interact with. And I think that's going to be a tough awakening for some organizations. Mm -hmm. But I also think it's one of the undercurrents that's driving uh, what we're beginning to see in some of these specific companies and what we're seeing in terms of a, a broader charge from society saying, you know what, you've got to operate within mm -hmm. these ethical parameters. That said, one of the things I found interesting too was the way in which people in your survey, the executives in your survey, uh, related to the value attributed to reputation. And I think it was one third of executives say that 76%, uh, so th more than three quarters of their corporate market value they were attributing to reputation. Now, 76% to some of us may seem a bit <laughs> high, uh, but I, I remember back in, in 2018, after Elon Musk uh, had done a few things, there was an SEC investigation. He was acting er erratically. He famously you know, smoked pot on a popular podcast. That Not this one. Not right, this right. one. That's right. <laughs> just, just keep the record straight. We've got to keep our own reputation. Um, but Tesla lost $3 billion in the market in a day. Uh, now, that's a lot of money, but at that time, that represented about a little over 6% yeah. of its market cap. How should we really think about that? Do you really think seriously they think that three-quarters of the value of their company is reputation, or are they, this is just an indication that, well, it, it's a big factor? Well, we asked the question. I've been asking this question for a long time <laughs> in the various studies that we've done, I, and I've done uh, over many years. And we, it's open-ended. We ask executives, you know, give us an, their best estimate to the extent they think reputation impacts market value. And this is a pretty high number. On average, it's about 63%. And then we found this group that we call the 76 percenters who say that at least 76% of their company's market value, value is attributable to reputation. And that is a really high number. But we are, no doubt about it, we're living in a world of an age of intangibles. I mean, I just recently saw something in the insurance journal that said 90% of the S&P's 500 market capitalization is intangible assets. It's wow. 90% that in what goes in that is data, intellectual property, brand, and reputation. And 35 years ago, they said it was about 17%. So I think there is a, a worldwide perception that reputation really contributes a great deal, certainly more than half, to a company's um, 
market value. And I I think it is amazing. Uh, Leslie, how much of that is the CEO individually? I think it matters a great deal. And in our study, when we asked the question, it was about the estimate is about 58% of a company's reputation is due to the CEO's reputation. And I think it matters a great, great, great deal. And getting stakeholders to have confidence and trust in the strategy that the CEO has established and how they communicate values and what those values are and how they use their time to direct that strategy, I think it matters a great deal. And it's not celebrity worship by any means. It's all about credibility of the CEO. So a large part of our audience um, are people in the craft of corporate communications, both on the agency side and internally. We've got a fair number of uh, chief communications officers that we know that listen to us, particularly in the U.S. and Europe. What I'm curious, are, are there some steps, you know, that you would encourage chief communications officers, people in corporate communications to follow if indeed they, they want to make sure that the reputation of the enterprises, of the organizations that they're helping are more highly valued? Yeah, I mean, there are definitely, we identify in the report, but I think it's really important not to overlook any drivers of reputation. I don't think anyone can afford that any longer. It's almost like a house of cards. If you overlook one driver, <laughs> you may really lose it all. Yep. I think measurement is key. It's a little bit like playing um, whack-a-mole. Right? Yeah, it is. It, and it, it really is. I mean, you have to measure and monitor your reputation um, often. I think you have to communicate what drives your reputation and how important it is to every single employee and make sure your stakeholders understand that. I think, like we were just saying, senior leadership being visible in some way, whether it's in the community or social media or being accessible internally is extremely important. I think employees today really hold the keys to reputation, the whole culture and what kind of a culture you have and whether they'll support you or be criticizing you. And I think companies and its leadership need to really take the pulse on what's Mm -hmm. happening and not be surprised. Mm-hmm. and be prepared. Well, along those lines, Leslie, the you wrote something recently on LinkedIn, and I encourage everybody to look up Leslie on LinkedIn if you don't have her already as a connection uh, on trends and risks in 2020 for reputation. And the one that i very interested in is this idea of CEO activism, which, again, you've led the way in, in studying. And one of your cautions is that there is no playbook for CEO activists. And you say, how big a risk are activist CEOs taking as a result? And what's your advice for CEOs and communicators on how to handle corporate activism? So how does a company decide, how does a CCO decide where a company should play on CEO activism? Well, CEO activism is definitely um, mainstream today. Mm -hmm. It's the new normal. And um, it is pretty, um, we're kind of used to it, but it's still pretty amazing that CEOs are willing to speak up publicly on some of the biggest hot-button social issues that are happening in the world. And I think that what's happened, it's really been evolving for a few years now, but now I think it's more uh, understood that companies and CEOs need to decide and vet 
what they are going to speak out about, and you cannot speak up out about everything. Right. right. What really core to your business? You have to know what's core to your business uh, because that's what your employees expect that you're going to defend them um, about when it comes to the, your business, your core, and your values. I think that you have to make your values crystal clear internally and externally so that it's understood why you would be speaking out and you're not just speaking out to get publicity. I think you have to have your house in order. Make sure if you're going to go speak up on diversity and then you have no, let's say, women in your executive team or on your board, you're, that's not smart. I think you have to know what your employees are thinking. And again, it's, there is no playbook. There is no win-win. <laughs> yeah. I feel like 20 years, 15 years ago, there, it was you do this or you do that. Exactly. And now you're going to win some, you're going to lose some, people are going to complain, they're going to criticize. And the what's changing in the world of activism is actually that it's okay to speak up. It's great. It's bold and courageous and I applaud it if it's the right um, issue and it's core to your values. But you have to take action. Right. Uh, media, the media, your employees, all your stakeholders are looking to see, okay, that's great. You said the words, but now what are you doing about right. it? Right. So that is really a change in the CEO activism spectrum. Yeah, and I just read this morning, uh, you know, Amazon and a bunch of other companies have uh, spoken out on climate change. Right. And and I read on a blog that I get sort of a pro- progressive blog every morning that all of the companies um, noted in this blog that have taken a strong stand on activism or on climate change activism have also given political funds, campaign donations to some of the biggest climate deniers mm-hmm. in, in U.S. Congress without naming names. So that's the risk you're talking about right. here as well, too, well, Leslie, right, is that right. your actions have to match those those words. Right. And um, it's also because you can't hide anything anymore. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, we've talked about on here, Greg Page, who used to be the CEO at at Cargill, used to say, you know, in a world where nothing can be hidden, you better not have anything to hide. (laughs) It's so true. So you have to look at absolutely everything you're doing and everything you say, everything your employees say. Yeah. Uh, You have to be really careful. Yeah, well, and, and I think that brings up a couple of really good points. Uh, one, there isn't the playbook. Two, uh, there's a bit of a, of, of a balancing act because yes. every company has different pockets of, of constituencies or, or stakeholders. Uh, not all of those stakeholders necessarily see each issue in the same way. And each of those issues that might confront a company or an employee or uh, one of those stakeholders might have an interest in might not be a truly critical factor mm-hmm. for that company. And so they need to gauge how does that ultimately play out uh, with their customers and, and, and with a, a myriad of, of stake, stakeholders and, and influencers they have to deal with in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. I mean, the perfect example, you know, is Dick Sporting Goods. Mm-hmm. And, right. Um, CEO at Stack took a position on gun control and employees, some employees quit. I mean, more than a handful of employees mm-hmm. quit. Customers were very, you know, had their opinions and either 
decided to continue shopping there or not. But here's a CEO who spoke out, took, took the losses, and has really never turned back. Yeah. Well, and I think some of these things are close calls. Some of them people do measure ahead of time. Exactly. The classic case, you know, is with Colin Kaepernick and the position that Nike took. Although I'll I'll say it again, Nike took that position after it had signed its deal with the NFL. Right. Um, (laughs) But 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 I think that there's a you know the smarter ones are going into this, weighing the pluses and minuses. Yeah. Oh, well, you look at CVS and, and ending tobacco sales. Right. Well, like, uh, so, yeah. so all of a sudden, completely aligned with now, values. Now, what we all did not see at that time is we didn't realize that it was part of a larger strategy exactly. for them to actually go into the health Health business, yeah. yeah. Terrific. So, Leslie, just to wrap up here, what's so what's next on your, your research? You've studied many, many things. Civility in, in America, I think, is a great series of studies that you've done. What's What are you thinking about next? Well, the civility in America... Series, which is this year we're doing, and it's going to be the 10th year anniversary. I mean, that's incredible that we started and looking at it in 2010. Very precious, yes. <laughs> and we thought disability meant talking on your cell phone during dinner. Right. <laughs> so it's really that, that we're definitely looking at. And that's an important survey also because of the idea of many people think that work can be a safe haven yes. from all the instability out there. And and employee activism is something we're looking at, again, because this is something that companies are really going to struggle with. Like, what do you do? What are the solutions when you have your employees protesting on the streets of Boston or you are signing petitions or going worldwide and protesting the company for a day? So I think trying to better understand what can companies do better so that at least they see it before it happens and they can do something about it is something we want to try and understand better. Yeah, and that takes a really robust employee engagement effort internally. Right. More so than companies, big companies particularly, traditionally have have run in the past. Uh, and I, so I completely agree with you. Well, Leslie, it, Leslie, it's been terrific talking to you. Where can we find your study? It's on the Weber Shanwick site, I'm sure, right? It's the WeberShanwick.com site. Terrific. Leslie's one of the most respected people in, the, in our business in the world. On so are both of you. Oh, well, <laughs> you know, we're just little college professors here. You know, <laughs> we're just plugging along with our students and, and learning from people like you and like them, actually. So, Leslie, thank you for taking the time to be on the course. Thank you, Leslie. Thank you for inviting me. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.